Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Good evening and welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. All right, and this is the show where we talk about all the things related to God, the Bible, and real life. I'm, 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 I think I'm talking in the mic. Hello. <laughs> yeah, there you go. All, right. all right. Hello. And helping us on the show this week and every week, and helping Monique adjust her microphone is Bob Bontrager. There he is. Woohoo! We are back, and we are. Uh oh. So, yeah, I'm sorry, know. I got demoted Just to amateur button pusher. Amateur right. button pusher. <laughs> All right, we are live, and we want to invite you to join the conversation on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, We stream at All the Things Show, and also on Facebook, we stream at Center for Biblical Unity and Theology Mom. Yes, we do. How you doing? How was your week? Was your week like mine? My week was remarkably similar to yours yes Yes, we spent the week in atlanta georgia um and did work and impact 360 one of our sponsors yes and we got to speak to 70 young people between the ages of 14 and 18 years old and some of their staff and it was a remarkable time yeah we were part of the immersion camp which is their two-week summer camp and so students were allegedly like between the ages of 14 and 18 Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm. I must be getting old. They all look like they were in their twenties to me, but apparently they were teenagers. fourteen to eighteen. <laughs> there were a couple of um, staff people in there and counselors and things yeah. like that, but it was such a good time. Immersion really immerses your young person into their worldview, into the Christian worldview, and so it's a worldview program for two weeks. And if you are interested, you'll find out more information about Impact Three Hundred and Sixty later on in our show. That's right. And um, we also did a, a live stream this week for members of our education educators support group mm-hmm. on Facebook with our friend David Schmoose. He's the executive director of Christian Educators Association International, CEA.org. So okay. it's basically an organization to help support Christians who are working in public school education. We had a great time uh, with the members of our support group and helping them to get some encouragement uh, during some very rough times. Yeah. And it's not just encouragement. Like they also provide like almost like a union kind of structure where you can receive legal help and all of that for Christian educators who might find themselves in trouble when they are standing for a Christian worldview. Yeah. So that was a good time. Uh, yeah, so even though we were away, a lot of good ministry was was still happening. There was still a lot of good ministry. It was a good time, yeah. good time away, and we are now back and ready to hit the ground running. We want to invite you to share the show. That's the best way to help support us. And uh, just hit that thumbs up, hit the like button, uh, click on the share button, and uh, make a comment. All of those things help notify the bots Uh, to push out our content to others. So the more that you do that, the more it helps us. And we do want to say thank you to our moderators who are helping out on tonight's show. 
uh, Laura Hartley and Alicia Moss. Hello, ladies. Thanks so much. All right, ready to jump in? Oh, okay. I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm just asking. Well, I was going by what was on the cue sheets here. Oh, well, you know, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Depends on what day of the week it is. <laughs> um, this show is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity, Family Two Ten Clothing, Theology Mom Podcast. That's right. And our design of the week tonight, we've got uh, family210.com. You can go check out our designs uh, for our family clothing shop. And all of that comes to, well, there's a portion of that uh, that comes to us directly as a family. And um, a portion that comes to the Center for Biblical Unity. If you buy a CFBU shirt, yeah, then it goes to Center for Biblical Unity. And this is a CFBU shirt, Speak Truth to Error, based on the verse in Ephesians 4. And so this is one of the things that we are really promoting. It's the fact that, one, we speak truth to error, not necessarily to power, because power doesn't always, just because you have power doesn't mean you're lying or that you're wrong or unbiblical. Um, And we also understand that truth has no color. So those are two of our newest shirts that are up. So big days ahead for you. Yes. We've got the Reconciled Curriculum dropping very soon very soon so if people pre-ordered when are they going to be able to expect it to come into their july inbox? 31st wow so july 31st. I think that's two weeks from today that's two weeks so two we've got weeks. the big launch party coming on july 29th thursday during the family meeting july 29th we're actually going to start an hour early on the family meeting on july 29th and so we'll go from five to seven, so five until our regular end time at seven o'clock. Yes. So uh, join us for that very special family meeting. Uh, mark your calendars to come to our launch party. What an amazing accomplishment with just the two of us. Just the two of us. Bob working just on the, vi- the on the videos, us. the video yes, teachings. We've got volunteers who have been helping us with editing and marketing and design and all of these things. It has just been a crazy ride. We started writing it the last week of December. Yes. Last week of December. So amazing what we've been able to put together in such a short amount of time, but I think yes. people are going to enjoy it. If I had a tambourine, I'd be like, look what the Lord has done. Hey, <laughs> And you know, I don't know how I go from like Will Smith to look what the Lord has done, but you know, I'm a work in progress. Yes. All right, so let's say hello to some people joining us on the stream uh, on YouTube. I see uh, Rachel from South Carolina. Welcome, Rachel. Hello. Julie is checking in from Central New York. Hey, Susanna. Now, Susanna's local. We know Susanna. She's been with us from the beginning. So, Jean uh, from Minneapolis. All right, Twin Cities. Yes. Checking in. All right. Who's seeing us on Facebook? I don't think anyone's uh, on Facebook. Nobody's on Facebook. Christy. Oh, wait. Never Rowden. Catherine Clark from Oklahoma. And Alicia from the Chicago area. Hey, Alicia. Glad to see you here. So, yeah. Say hi to us and let us know you're watching. Thinking that on, on YouTube, it says, thinking that you two don't sleep. You, so what, you know, that's, so a, that's a debatable question. <laughs> Some of us do. Some of us really do. So this morning, kind of funny story. Uh, we were supposed to have a donor call this morning and just tired, just overslept. <laughs> so 
Sorry, donors. We will reschedule. Yes, I've already sent out an email. I have already sent out an email. <laughs> so if you were trying to be on the donor call this morning, you were at the right place and at the right time. We weren't. <laughs> yes. We weren't there, but we will catch up with you soon. Okay. Are you ready to get into our topic for tonight? I am. All right. So I saw an article this week in Scientific American, and Scientific American is a pretty... Um, it's it's not like a uh, it's it, it's not a gossip paper like it, it, traditionally you see something in Scientific American you think oh th- this is probably well reasoned pretty credible um, it's it's a place for generally good information I I don't know what happened here but <laughs> this article really caught my attention so the headline. I think Bob's got it here. Denial of evolution is a form of white supremacy. As museums reopen, let's introduce ourselves and our children to the original black ancestors of all human beings. Now, this immediately caught my attention because I'm thinking, all right, well, I, you know, I, I've been working for a while at a science apologetics ministry. It's something I, I know a thing or three about. And so I was immediately intrigued. And then when I started reading this article, I thought, oh, my word, this is such a confusing mess. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it would be good if we have our friend on, Dr. Fuzz Rana, to talk about this. Uh, Fuzz was on our show actually a couple of years ago when we had like 10 followers. And uh, we did a conversation on transhumanism. So if people miss that discussion, you might want to catch that in the archives. That was a great discussion um, really uh, ahead of its time. Um, but let's talk a little bit about human origins and why we at the Center for Biblical Unity have put that in our doctrinal statement mm-hmm. that we hold to of a, a belief on the historical Adam and Eve. Yes, we, we definitely hold to a belief on the historical Adam. I mean, I don't know if you were setting me up to say something or not. Well, I was kind of hoping you would jump in. Well, you worked at the Science Apologetic Ministry, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and throw that back to you. Oh, all right. Well, then let's just bring Fuzz on. <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, this is, this is the point in the show where, you know, she, she threw the ball that I missed. <laughs> <laughs> There it That's is. all right. Hey, Fuzz. Hey, Chris, uh, Monique. Uh, how are you guys doing? We're, we're doing good. We're all right. How you doing? I'm great. I'm doing great. Well, this will be fun because I think it'll be great to introduce. Uh, we have a ton of new followers and it'll be great to introduce them to your work and to the work at Reasons to Believe. I think um, maybe just to get started as we're framing this up here, I know that you've been looking at this article and and kind of researching it. Um, my understanding is that the main point of this article is to basically proclaim to the to the world that um, if you want to be for the fight against racism, you now need to be for evolution or common descent. Is, is that kind of how you're reading the main idea of this too? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I think though the author even goes maybe even one step further and, and, points out that if you actually adopt an anti-evolutionist standpoint, if you are a creationist, that you, in a sense, are a white supremacist. So it's really, it's almost as if the author has taken the gloves off 
you know, and uh, thrown down the gauntlet and really, you know, going beyond just simply saying, hey, an evolutionary position is a is a position that supports racial unity. It, the author is really going to the uh, to the extreme of saying that the opposite position is again a, a racist position. That creationism is uh, racist. Yeah, and I I think you're right, and I think I'm. It's troubling because you know we're we're creationists, and we have creation as part of our statement of faith, um, both for this podcast as well as for the Center for Biblical Unity, and and you know we have we're you know, we're pretty clear about like, you know, hey, we might have volunteers and board members that would be on different sides of the age of the earth debate of whether the universe is, is thousands of years old versus the mainstream um, age of, of billions of years old. But we could all agree on creation, that God has intervened, that we are special creations. We are a result of miraculous interventions. So we'll kind of, un, uh, you know, unravel some of those things tonight, but uh, trying to look for some points of commonality, but we're all creationists. So we want to state that clearly up front um, as to what our position is. Um, now, I know that in your book, Who is Adam, which I want to encourage people if they want to do a deeper dive on these issues to get connected with that resource. How would you describe kind of the current, understanding of human origins, you know, about when the humans are originated, where they originated, kind of the when and the where, and then we'll circle back to the whole racism question a little bit yeah. later in the conversation. Yeah. And, um, you know, the current thinking, uh, scientifically speaking, when it comes to the question of human origins is that, uh, is the, the model broadly speaking known as the out of Africa model. Uh, and the idea behind this model is that humanity actually has a remarkably recent origin uh, in the neighborhood of, oh, approximately uh, 150,000 years ago. And the location of humanity's origin seems to pinpoint to East Africa uh, and that humanity began with a, what we might say, a relatively small population size and began to migrate uh, throughout the world, oh, in the 50 to 70,000 year window of time for going through uh, the Middle East and then fanning out uh, to the different parts of the world, probably Asia and then from Asia, a back migration into Europe and then also a migration ultimately into the Americas. And, and so that's in, in a broad sense, the, the migration patterns. Uh, but there's some provocative things that, that come out of this idea. One is that uh, when we look at the genetic variability of all people on the planet using mitochondrial DNA as a marker, we can trace the origin of, of humanity back to a single ancestral sequence uh, that is uh, often referred to as mitochondrial Eve uh, in the scientific literature. And there are uh, many anthropologists that believe mitochondrial Eve actually corresponded to a single female individual. Uh, likewise, with uh, y chromosomal DNA as a genetic marker, we can show that every man on the planet traces an origin back to a single ancestral sequence that, again, many people think corresponds to a single male individual known as Y chromosomal Adam in the scientific literature. And increasingly, the data indicates that 
Y-chromosomal Adam and, and mitochondrial Eve would have uh, coexisted at the same period of time. Uh, so this is, in, again, a broad sense what the, the scientific evidence uh, tells us. And you know, to Allison Hooper's uh, credit, who is the, you know, the author of this op-ed piece that we're discussing, uh, she rightly points out that, uh, every, that, that really humanity began as African people, that, that the, the very first humans looked most likely like African people groups look today, and that ultimately, you know, all, every human being uh, is African underneath our skin, that we all really are, in a sense, have an African heritage. And this is really, in, in a sense, her basis for the claim that this evolutionary view of, of human origins really promotes uh, racial unity, or at least it should promote racial unity, and really undermines any basis for racial discrimination we might level against one another. I think that's really good, Fuzz. And maybe if we could look at that particular section in the editorial, and I'm going to have Bob put it up on the screen here, the second paragraph, if we can scroll down to that. There we go. Uh, she says, the global scientific community overwhelmingly accepts that all living humans are of African descent. Most scientific articles about our African origins focus on genetics. Um the part of the story that is not widely shared is about the creation of human culture. We're all descended genetically and also culturally from dark skinned ancestors. Early humans from the African continent are the ones who invented first uh, invented tools, the use of fire language and religion. These dark skinned early people laid down the foundation for human culture. So if I understand what you're saying, fuzz, you would say you largely agree with that, that that seems to be a fairly well-supported idea scientifically looking at multiple lines of evidence that have been kind of worked on by scientists over a, a, a fairly significant amount of time over the last couple of decades. Yeah. And, you know, I always try to look for places of common ground whenever I'm looking at, you know, an article that broadly I might broadly disagree with or at least disagree with certain aspects of, of the article. And so the first two paragraphs of the article, I was like in, in full agreement. It's like, you know, yes, we, we, we should be celebrating, you know, the, the African-American heritage that is part of our, our country, particularly the, 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 the positive aspects of that heritage, as opposed to necessarily the, the tragedy that was, again, part of, you know, the horrific institution of slavery, that, you know, is a, a blotch, I think, on American history. And so, you know, we should celebrate, you know, the, the, the African-American contribution. And it is provocative to think that, again, that everything about us as human beings ultimately traces back to African people groups. I, I firmly agree with those, those, those two ideas that are communicated in the first two paragraphs. And you really applaud Alison Hooper for, for emphasizing this point you know, and I even would agree with her that uh, as she continues in the piece, that oftentimes when you look at uh, popular scientific articles or displays in museums that are communicating questions of human origins, oftentimes this, this fact, this point is largely overlooked. And I think it's a really important question to ask why that is. So I have no issue with the, really the, 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 the first, you know, two, three paragraphs of the article whatsoever. 
Yeah, that's that's important. And now getting into kind of shifting from, all right, what does the scientific data seem to be telling us? Now, when we think about, well, what is the biblical data for, for human origins? Help us make sense of that. Because if I'm looking in Genesis 2, the early verses of Genesis 2, the picture that's painted there is that the first humans, Adam and Eve, are direct creations of God. They're created in the image of God, and they're created near the Middle East, you know, near the Tigris and Euphrates River. That doesn't sound like Africa to me. So help me think that through a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That's a, you know, and, you know, it's very important to pay attention to what the Bible says and what the Bible doesn't say. And I think it's also important to recognize at times that that, that Scripture lacks maybe some of the specificity that we would actually like to have. Uh, and so, you know, we're, we're looking, you know, through the lens darkly, if you will, when it comes to the question of human origins, where we do have some very important biblical clues. But again, there's the lack of specificity that we might like to have. But broadly speaking, you know, we, we do see that, you know, again, humanity is created uniquely in God's image. This is an incredibly important point that, that uh, uh, we are creatures made by God, but we stand apart in that we are image bearers. And because we are image bearers, we have certain responsibilities to the creation, uh, primarily as caretakers of the creation. Uh, we are the crown of creation. We also see uh, from Genesis 2 that humanity began with a primordial pair, an Adam and an Eve that gave rise uh, to all humanity. All human beings, uh, you know, descend from Adam and Eve, and it's clear from Genesis five that the image of God that is was in Adam and Eve is propagated to all human beings, because we all are descendants of Adam and Eve. We are genetic descendants of Adam and Eve, but we also see that you know the the sin that Adam and Eve engaged in uh, damaged or marred the image of God, and that damage to the image of God. Uh, that is also propagated to all humanity, again, because of Adam and Eve's sin. Uh, we see that the, the location, as you mentioned, uh, for the Garden of Eden is bounded by four rivers, the Tigris, Euphrates, the Pishon, and the Gihon rivers. We, we don't know where these other two rivers are. I think some very interesting scholarship suggests that maybe the Garden of Eden would have uh, resided at what is today the bottom of the Persian Gulf. But we also see a statement about um, the Garden of Eden extending into the land of Cush, which in that context would have been Ethiopia. And so now we have this intriguing idea that maybe the Garden of Eden actually included uh, areas of East Africa. And of course, you know, uh, we would expect, again, humanity to begin with two individuals and, and have a growing population from those two individuals uh, that, and when we look at the uh, account in Genesis 10 for the, the scattering of humanity, again, that seems to indicate that the scattering would have happened at or near the Middle East. And again, uh, we would see humanity spreading outward. And, and so all of these ideas that are you know, part of this biblical account uh, actually resonate in a remarkable way with the out of Africa model. The chief difference, or one of the chief differences, of course, is in the out of Africa model, it's couched in evolutionary terms. And you know, the biblical view is couched in, in 
in creationist terms, but nevertheless, the, the details, at least what we have with the, the scant details, uh, are congruent with one another, even this provocative idea of a mitochondrial, even a Y chromosomal atom. I, I think you might be hard pressed to say that mitochondrial Eve and Y chromosomal Adam were the biblical Adam and Eve, but you could easily say that it does indeed look like humanity comes from a small population in a single location. And you do have this provocative idea that there is a, a mother of all living, you know, living uh, people and that, you know, mitochondrial Eve could be understood as the mother of all living people. So some very interesting harmony connection points, resonances between the scientific data in the biblical account. And when we think about what we're really talking about here, Fuzz, is general revelation and special revelation. We're looking at what does the biblical data say about human origins? It gives us a few details, but there's also a lot of things that aren't there. And then we're looking out at general revelation. What can we know about humanity's origins by looking out at the creation? And then we're trying to do the hard homework of bringing these two together, seeing where, like you said, there might be some connection points. And I think we can all agree that the Bible isn't a scientific textbook. It doesn't give us all the details, but because we are created in the image of God, I think God's given us the ability to go out and probe the creation, look at it and begin to study it uh, together. And uh, I think that's such a, it's such a helpful, like non-fearful way of going about that integration process. Well, you um, know, and if I could just jump in yeah. and make a, re a really quick point, you know, it, we, we seem to be picking a little bit on the Bible, you know, uh, pointing out that, that there's, again, maybe a, a dearth of, of details that we would love to have. But when we are trying to probe the origin of humanity, scientifically speaking, we also are looking through the lens darkly as well. There's a lot of information we don't have that we would love to be able to have our hands to try to piece together the puzzle of, of humanity's origin. So we were looking at two incomplete data sets as we are, again, trying to do this reconciliation project. And, and that's challenging, okay? And, and, and so we just need to keep that in mind that there will be places of apparent conflict but we don't have to get uh, worked up about it because, again, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with incomplete data sets. What's remarkable to me is that we're, we're, we see congruence. Yeah. Uh, be, uh, that, to me, is, is incredibly remarkable, and we don't want to blow past that point as we you know, seek for perfect one-to-one you know, -one correspondence. That may ne never exist, but the fact that there's congruency is remarkable to me. So... Like when we go on Wikipedia, for example, I got a little graphic here of kind of the uh, artistic depiction of the out of Africa migration idea. And so you can see here, you know, like the first humans come out of North, Northeast Africa and then spread over the planet. Um, and it is somewhat adjacent to the biblical description. And when we think about the land of Cush being a descriptor for Northeast Africa, the garden could have extended that far. And so it's, it now would be more problematic if we said, well, the Bible is telling us that Adam and Eve lived in Missouri, for example, mm -hmm. that would be much more deeply problematic. Um, and, but there is this adjacency. So I, yeah, go ahead. I know you have questions. 
<laughs> I have tons. <laughs> um, I guess part of like in, in listening to the overlap of um, the scientific data and the biblical data and not wanting to, you know, leave one behind would it is it possible then to believe in like the the out of Africa scenario while still not holding to the evolutionary or evolutionist um, framework? Yeah, yes, I think it it is possible. I think you can do it actually with integrity because r- really, in in a sense, the out of a- the out of Africa model, uh, which is primarily supported by genetic diversity data of people around the world really uh, has its um, has the, the, the framework for the model established by looking at the genetic variability of people today and trying to work our way backward towards what the very first uh, human beings would be like. And so whether you view humanity's origin from a, you know, a creationist perspective or from an evolutionary perspective, you, you, you still are using the data in exactly the same way. The primary difference between those two viewpoints is how do you ultimately arrive at that primordial population? Is it through an act of creation and, and God's intervention, or is it through an evolutionary process? And so the, the data in support of the out-of-Africa model could uh, be appropriated by uh, people with two very different worldviews or two very different scientific approaches uh, it, with integrity, I think. So there's, you know, again, we're always saying on the show, like when we had our friend Eric Muldrow on, you know, we're differentiating between data, data points and interpretation. Here again, we're looking at data points and multiple lines of data versus the interpretive framework. And I think what Fuzz is trying to lead us into is helping us make that careful differentiation and understanding that, you know, evolution is is a interpretive framework and, you know, there's other ways of looking at this same data. Um, and again, I want to commend people to your book, Who is Adam? If they find this kind of thing fascinating or if they have someone in their family that is really intru- into uh, cultural anthropology and human origins, uh, your incredible book, Who is Adam? It's very thorough, just kind of laying out in a lot more detail with uh, citations and academic documentation for papers on trying to get to an an integrative framework um, between general and special revelation. So people can go check that out at the reasons.org website if they want to get more information about that. Um, So when Monique and I early on had conversations about our position on creation, one of the things that we identified that we wanted to embed into our statement of faith was a historical Adam and Eve as being real people. Maybe you can walk us through kind of some of the biblical data on that. We've alluded to it already, but why is it that you think that it's important for Christians to affirm a historical Adam and Eve as the first human pair? Yeah, well, you know, to me, there's a number of reasons. One is that I think scripture teaches that humanity emanates from a, a historical Adam and Eve, and that they were indeed the sole progenitors of humanity. I think this is, uh, I think, strongly implied in, in Genesis 2 and Genesis 5. Uh, but we also see, for example, uh, the genealogy in Luke, which has 
you know, the, the origin of Jesus's lineage going back to essentially the historical Adam and Eve. Uh, uh, and that this is, you know, uh, uh, I, I think a critical theological point because it's essentially making the point that Jesus, who Paul will describe as the second Adam, uh, is essentially uh, in, is thoroughly human, uh, a thoroughly human, or at least has a thoroughly human nature. Uh, we also see Paul talking about again this idea in, in in when he's in front of the Areopagus that again all humanity comes from from again an Adam and an Eve, uh, or or we look at what Paul writes in Romans or in in First uh, Corinthians again this idea that because all human beings are in Adam, we all have the sin nature, and that Christ as the second Adam undoes the damage of what of the what the first Adam did. So there's, you know, I think some very clear biblical statements, you know, uh, that strongly imply that Adam and Eve were real people, and that they were sole progenitors for humanity. And of course, you have what Jesus uh, uh, states in uh, Mark 10, for example, that again, all humanity comes from an Adam and an Eve. So if you deny the historicity of Adam and Eve, and again, the idea that they're sole progenitors, you now call into question uh, the teachings of Jesus. You call into question uh, the teachings of, of the Apostle Paul, who's the chief interpreter of the life, death, and resurrection of, of Christ. And there's a number of critical doctrines that are intertwined to the idea of human beings being made in God's image, and uh, again, having a soul origin in a historical Adam and Eve. And, and, and this has to do with uh, questions about human sexuality, do the doctrine of marriage. It has to do with, again, the, the doctrine of original sin. It connects profoundly to our capacity as human beings to have a relationship with God because we're image bearers, and it even bears on the atonement. And so, you know, as our, our friend uh, Ken Keithley once told me, and Ken is a, a, a theologian, systematic theologian at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, the historical Adam and Eve is kind of like that thread on a sweater that's dangling there. And if you start pulling that thread, suddenly what you see is that the sweater itself begins to unravel. And so it's, it's if we start to abandon the historical Adam and Eve, we really start to unravel I think the distinctives of uh, the Christian faith. Okay. So I have a question. <laughs> it's just between us. <laughs> so if we all started out with the same Adam and Eve, does that mean that we all kind of black on the inside? Like, <laughs> like, are we all like, you know what I'm saying? We, we're all cousins. You know, we all cousins. And if so, if, if, like, if this is truly true, and I believe it is, why are there so many differences of skin color? I think that's a question that we get a lot is, you know, in, in proclaiming this one race mentality, you are doing away with people's um, different skin colors and facial features, and you're just erasing over that. Where did all of the, the differences come from when truly we might all be a little African on the inside? It, it, we're not all a little African on the inside. We're all a lot of African on the inside. Hey, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, and, 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 and to me, this is the profound, you know, I think this is the profound scientific finding that Alison Hooper is trying to get at, to her credit, in this article. You know, in that, yes, indeed, there are, you know, there is racial diversity in the world. 
Uh, today, anthropologists refer to the term regional differences as opposed to racial differences, which I really like. And we can readily explain these differences through microevolutionary mechanisms. Now, I, I'm a card-carrying creationist, but I do believe that certain aspects of the evolutionary paradigm are well established, that, that there is the capacity for evolutionary mechanisms to, sorry, to generate variation or variability within a population. And if you think about it, if humanity begins near the equator, having a heavily pigmented skin is, is actually an advantage. Uh, it's, it's an advantage because it protects the skin from the damage of UV radiation. Uh, and, and that's critical for preserving uh, folic acid levels in, in the human body, which is critical for uh, healthy pregnancies. And so there's a very strong uh, you know, motivation, if you will, on the part of the creator to create the very first human beings with heavily pigmented skin. And you know, as human beings begin to migrate out of the equatorial regions into the northern latitudes, one of the, the, the downsides of having heavily pigmented skin is that it slows down the rate of vitamin D synthesis, which isn't a problem when you're exposed to sunlight uh, you know, year round. But in the northern latitudes where there are significant periods of time throughout the year where there's minimal sunlight, that actually becomes now a disadvantage. And so light pigmentation actually allows for effective vitamin D synthesis and you no longer need that, that same level of skin protection as you would if you lived in the equatorial region. So this would be an example of natural selection helping to, to shape our, our biology, if you will. And the, the difference between uh, skin, you know, people with dark skin versus light skin, it has to do with differences in skin pigment levels as well as differences in what are called melanosome size and distribution. These are the organelles in certain skin cells and the melanocytes that contain the pigment. And in people with dark skin, the melanosome, melanosomes are smaller in size and they're uniformly distributed throughout our skin. And people with light skin, melanosomes tend to be larger and are clumpy. And that accounts in part for the differences in, 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 in skin coloration, if you will. But there's other things that uh, represent you know, advantages, if you will. So if you live near the equator, an elongated body allows for effective heat radiation. If you're in more uh, northern latitudes where it's colder, a, a, a barrel-shaped body with shorter limbs is actually an advantage. It helps to retain heat. Uh, the structure of the nose can make a difference. A, a flat, broad nose is ideal. But in northern latitudes, a long, narrow nose actually allows for cold air to warm up before it makes its way into the lungs. And so through natural selection, you can explain some of the, the regional differences that you see in human beings. Uh, there's also this idea of sexual selection, where if natural selection is the survival of the fittest, sexual selection could be understood as the survival of the, those that are most attractive. The problem is, is that what makes someone attractive is largely subjective and could actually uh, be cultural in nature, which means as human beings began to migrate around the world to different parts of the world, uh, those populations became uh, genetically isolated as well as culturally isolated and very well may have actually deemed certain features 
less or more attractive depending on the particular region of the world those human beings found themselves. And many of the, the so-called uh, racial differences from human beings is largely superficial differences that have to do with what, what anthropologists call signaling traits. Uh, shape, the, the, the structure of the, the, the cheekbones and eye coloration and, and, and things like that, hair color and, and things like that. Uh, and, and, and so I always joke with my wife that I found, find her signaling traits appealing. Somehow she doesn't uh, uh, respond very well to that, that compliment, but, but the, the signaling traits are again, largely superficial in a biological sense. Uh, and the reason why we tend to see each other as being so different is because we're, we're designed to hone in on those signaling traits. And so therefore even very subtle differences is are magnified to us in terms of our perception, but biologically those differences are, are relatively, you know, benign. And there's also another mechanism that may contribute to regional differences. This is called genetic drift. It's a little bit of a complicated idea, so I'm not going to dig into it. But the point here is that the three, uh, the, the that natural selection, sexual selection, and genetic drift can easily explain regional differences in humanity and. And these regional differences can arise really within a few generations. And so as humanity began to migrate around the world and different populations were breaking off from one another, it's very easy to explain these regional differences. But again, these regional differences are significant in terms of offering some selective advantages, uh, but they are biologically uh, insignificant in terms of our, our identity and our nature uh, as human beings. Uh, there's, you know, there's nothing uh, fundamentally different about human beings, biologically speaking. And there's a very interesting statistic that you can uh, cite, and that is that the average genetic difference from population group to population group is less than the average genetic difference for people that are within a population. Uh, and so we're, we're, there's really no genetic difference between human beings in any kind of real uh, substantial way. But this could account for why we have a lot of conversations in our home about the thermostat. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. There could be a lot of reasons for that. Because we do. We do. We do have a lot. I of... need to be warm. <laughs> this <laughs> might be melanin related. It might be melanin related. <laughs> but like with the whole, the whole, um, like microevolutionary process, you know, Bob was asking something on the back end um, in regards to like with microevolution, how long would it take for someone to change? Cause I'm like, you know, if I go to Europe, you know, and then have kids in like three generations, will we be white? Like, I'm just wondering. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, this is, this is a really uh, interesting question because uh, prior to the out of Africa model, uh, the, the, the prevailing view in the scientific community was multi-regionalism, which basically said that human beings had independent evolutionary origins in different parts of the world. So that there was an African, uh, uh, that, 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 that humanity began 2 million years ago in, a, in effect with Homo erectus as being a, a primitive human. And that, that some of the uh, erectus population made its way into Europe, some made its way into, into Asia. 
uh, and into Australia and in these different parts of the world, these different groups evolved from a primitive form to a modern form and that the racial differences in these groups reflected uh, in, a, in effect two million years of evolutionary history. And you had people like Carlton Kuhn coming along uh, in the 1930s, uh, actually a, 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 a kind of fleshing out this idea of multi-regionalism where he made the, this point that again, the racial diversity that we see in the world is deep-seated and again, reflects an extensive evolutionary history. And this idea has largely shaped the way that we think about racial differences. And along comes the out of Africa model and says, wait a minute, humanity is not 2 million years old. We're, we're merely 100 to 150,000 years old. And that uh, we, we that, in fact, when you look at uh, difference for modern humans, uh, the, the very first modern humans that made their way out of Africa that began to migrate around the world show very little uh, skeletal differences. It's only uh, much later on that you begin to see regional differences in modern human skeletal um, features. And that suggests that, again, th these regional differences are rather uh, recent appearing uh, in human history. But one of the chief criticisms against the out-of-Africa model was there's no way to explain racial diversity. And in recent years, people have done a lot of work on trying to account for not only the origin of regional diversity, but also how could that regional diversity emerge so rapidly. And it turns out that this is where genetic drift plays a key role, that the mechanism of genetic drift, which is, again, a little bit uh, tricky to understand, can actually explain regional, the emergence of regional differences very rapidly within several generations. And, and so uh, this idea of, you know, you know, regional differences or racial diversity taking a long time to accrue is really simply not true scientifically. It can happen very quickly. So when the Bible tells us that Eve was the mother of all the living and, and Paul tells us that, you know, from one man came the human race, that's actually how science is starting to bear that out and fill in that picture that we really are one race. And what so much um, has been attached to these these racial differences. Um, scientifically, there was a, there was a theme for a while of looking into the multi-regional hypothesis as being a source for racial differences. But now that's been kind of cast by the wayside. And the out of Africa model actually has some interesting parallels with the biblical portrait of where we came from. And we really are all cousins and Adam and Eve are our first parents. So, all right, let's go back to the Scientific American article for a minute. And then we're going to go out and take some questions that have come in uh, during our conversation. So, uh, Bob, if we can go back to the Scientific American piece for a minute and then uh, scroll down. I want to read another paragraph. Uh, one more Uh, okay. Yeah. At the heart of white evangelical creationism. So I guess that's us, even though fuzz isn't really white and you're not white, but so I guess only creationists are white. I don't know. Is the mythology of an unbroken white lineage that stretches back to a light skinned Adam and Eve. 
in literal interpretations of the Christian Bible, white skin was created in God's image. Dark skin has a more problematic origin. As the biblical story goes, the curse or mark of Cain for killing his brother was a darkening of his descendant's skin. Historically, many congregations in the U.S. pointed to this story of Cain as evidence that black skin was created as a punishment. So let's walk through this. This is so... This I is, mean, I yeah. This, there's so many layers of problems here. So, all right, let's first take this sentence by sentence, Buzz, of, all right, that the Bible teaches that Adam and Eve were light-skinned and that a literal interpretation of the Bible is white skin was created in God's image. Let's talk about that first, and then we'll talk about the whole curse of Cain problem. Well, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that the Bible doesn't have that level of specificity. It doesn't have any mention of what the, the physical features of Adam and Eve were. Uh, we just we have to infer what that might have been from uh, extra biblical information. The Bible is simply silent on that. In fact, the Bible never describes uh, the mechanism or the origin of racial differences in human beings. It just, it describes human beings as being one group that was scattered after the Tower of Babel. And that scattering was driven by confounding of the languages. There is no mention of how racial differences even emerge with, I guess, the implication being that those racial differences happened, you know, at that point in time after the scattering of people around the world. So, that there's nothing in the biblical text that, that says that. Now, to be fair to Allison Hooper, I mean, there, there, uh, historically there uh, has been, there have been people who, as part of the apologetics that was used to justify, sadly, the institution of slavery, uh, made arguments along the lines that the descendants of Ham were dark skin or that uh, you know, as she's pointing out, that that dark skin was the the the, the curse, the mark, you know, uh, that was placed on on Cain. But the fact of the matter is that that is not a a a well supported interpretation of those passages of scripture. In fact, I've got an interesting little booklet uh, just sitting here next to me. It's called the title of the booklet is "Slavery Sanctioned by the Bible," and it's written by. I believe, a, a biblical scholar named Isaac Allen. And what's interesting, this is a, a booklet that's in the public domain, and it was written uh, during the, the uh, time of the Civil War in the U.S., where Isaac Allen was, a, a, was a, essentially an, a Christian abolitionist, and he essentially makes the case that the institution of slavery is not justified based on the biblical, uh, based on, the, on Scripture in its entirety, but the first thing he does is he essentially takes apart uh, this idea that descendants of Ham had dark skin. He simply disavows people that the Bible teaches that in any way, shape, or form. So sadly, we can find Christians who were fundamentalists, uh, who uh, tried to use that, that argument to justify the institution of slavery, and that, that sadly that idea has pers persisted even into the 20th century. So you can find people that make that point. But today, there are very few biblical scholars who would uh, make that kind of an argument. And there's no creationist organization I know of that would make that argument either, that, or that would make the case that Adam and Eve had, uh, light, had white skin. 
when I look at both the the curse, I've I've heard of both um, theories of like the curse of Ham and the curse of Cain, and that's where you get you know the black skin from and all that. But I mean, maybe I'm missing it in my Bible, but I don't see anything about skin in there. Like it says that that he was marked, but I mean, he could have been marked with a big nose. <laughs> you know, maybe like it doesn't. I don't see. So you're saying I've got the curse of Cain? No, <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Um, it doesn't say that, that it would be dark skin, that that is what, that that is what his, his curse would be for neither Ham nor Cain. And so I find it interesting that that's what the, the go-to is. I mean, back then, you know, during slavery time and even today that that is something that now is even being put forward as as a, you know, a reason for, you know, something else, more racist or more racism, sorry. I like how Fuzz said it, though, is that that it's very unfortunate that some Christian apologists use that argument. I mean, it's not hard to document um, that that was an argument that was used. I've looked at it pretty closely and all the way through, like, the 1950s. Mm -hmm. There were prominent names of people that were using that argument as a warrant for separation of the races, segregation, and even avoidance of interracial marriage. And so it is one of the more unfortunate um, and sad aspects of our history as American Christians. And so it's important to acknowledge that. But I think if we look at things more broadly, more globally, more historically, we see that this is a uniquely American Christian problem mm-hmm. in a in a very um, short, relatively speaking, window of time. When you look at things more historically and going back, you know, to the early church, there wasn't this idea yeah. of of uh, the mark of Cain being a race issue. This is something that is a uniquely American problem for a. a you know, a couple hundred years, but it is out there. And I didn't really realize how deeply embedded it was in American culture until I started doing a survey of even popular literature in the 19th century in, um, you know, popular people like Mark Twain. Well, you hadn't Um, heard of it until I came. Yeah, I had never heard of it. And as I started researching, I'm like, what is this? I remember that conversation. You were like, that's not a thing. And I was like. I've never heard that. I went to seminary school. And I said, you know, the person who started your seminary actually held this view. (laughs) Yeah. You said, no way. So Yes. (laughs) Yes, people. Anyway, sorry to keep you on our little tangent, (laughs) No, 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 no. It's not a little tangent. I think it's a really important point. You know, um, but, you know, what I think, you know, Alison Hooper completely ignores is that this idea of white supremacy influencing biblical interpretation is not just simply something that Christianity suffered from. This is something that anthropology has historically suffered from as well. If you go back into the writings of, of Charles Darwin in, in his in one of his early books, uh, uh, jur- um, Journals of Research, or uh, the Voyage of the Beagle, he talks about the uh, the, um, the, t- the natives of Tierra del Fuego and speaks about them as savages with the idea that these, uh, these people actually were morally and intellectually inferior, that they lacked self-command. And, and 
uh, you know, that, that uh, he viewed them in, in a disparaging manner, or you go into the descent of man, which is his, his treatise on human evolution, he, he basically held the view that different racial groups were at different stages in evolutionary history and that the white Europeans were actually the most evolutionary advanced people and that he even justified imperialism uh, with the idea of natural selection where uh, as the most advanced humans in evolutionary terms, we have a uh, scientific rationale and justification for actually uh, colonizing and, and, and enforcing, you know, British uh, imperialism on different people, native people groups in different parts of the world, because uh, again, of his views of, of human origins that were, you know, shaped in evolutionary terms. Or if you look at the, the idea of multi-regionalism, that again is an idea that's deeply steeped uh, with, within this notion of white supremacy, where the idea was that European people group uh, which evolved from Neanderthals were, you know, intellectually superior. Uh, that that we were a, that that whites were a superior race, uh, and because uh, we evolved separately, and our separate lineage led to a more advanced form of modern human. Uh, and and so this is part of anthropology. And to the credit of anthropologists, they are trying their very best to essentially move away from this, the, this very sad you know, chapter in their history as well. But what I find ironic here is Alison Hooper is very quick to point out you know, the, what the, the failings of, 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 Christ, of Christian theology and, 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 and uh, has rightly identified an association between creationism and this idea of white supremacy, but has failed to do likewise for uh, evolutionary um, biology and particularly evolutionary anthropology. And so the problem really is a problem of white supremacy, uh, which has, was then used to commandeer ideas in science and commandeer ideas in Christian theology. That's the issue, uh, is really the, the misappropriation of science and the misappropriation of theology to advance a, a, a social... Uh, or a political agenda more so than than these views naturally leading to uh, white supremacy. I think that's a really important point, and we um, I want to encourage people to go check out our conversation with our friend Dr. Joe Miller from last summer around this time, where we really did a deep dive into a lot of those questions. Uh, it's our episode called "Scientific Racism," which which looked at how white supremacy was um, tried to be buttressed by by science and that what fuzz is talking about here i i like how you frame that is that this is a problem of white supremacy not necessarily inherently a problem of christianity because as uh joe miller pointed out there were there were prominent christian voices who also spoke out against that error Mm -hmm. um at that time so it's important to to understand that as well. So yeah, did you want to ask a question? No, I didn't have a, a question necessarily. Oh, okay. I just, um, yeah, just the article, it, it's got me thinking. 
Yeah. And, and many other, I think there's many, many ways or many things that can be extrapolated from this article. So yes, you have this issue of white supremacy and um, like the historical Adam and Eve, but you also have this issue of power. You have the issue of critical theory and like the rewriting of history and, you know, how can we create our own history and like even, even um, potentially going down the line of like, a, it, is it, or could it be considered a revisionist history or, you know, like what is it, what is it all trying to do and what are the critical theories meant to do? And how is this now just entering into the sphere of science and Christianity together? And like, is, is this the, the intersection of science and Christianity in the realm of the critical theories? Yeah. I think that Fuzz, I really appreciate how you've walked us through how to think about this article, this uh, editorial and scientific American and to understand, you know, as we're in conversation with people, this might start being more of an issue where there is this collapsing that we're seeing happening in our culture right now of associating Christianity with racism and that that as we stand for our faith, if we are believe in creation, that we are being looked upon and equated to being racist. But we have to help people really thread through our position carefully. Yeah, well, you know, to me, I think ultimately, you know, when you think about the the, the idea that he, all human beings are created in God's image, and as a result of that, have inherent worth and dignity, are are equal in value. That that concept, I think, uh, is profound and really should be a very powerful antidote against any kind of racial discrimination. And you know, I think it really uh, demands that all of us you know, really pay attention to the very real uh, issues of racism that are still sadly part of our culture, not to sidestep those issues, but that we need to, I think, acknowledge where this, the injustice takes place and we need to work towards, you know, mitigating that injustice. But to me, the beauty of the Christian faith is that the solution, you know, to, to the divisions that exist among us uh, is essentially the gospel and the fact that we have unity in Christ, uh, that there is genuine reconciliation that takes place, and that you know through the gospel there is a very powerful motivation to ensure that there isn't injustice in the world, and we we are going to fail as and we're going if things are going to be imperfect, they're going to be messy, but there's this ideal that we're working towards from a Christian worldview perspective. Sadly, when I you know, and I'm not an expert in critical theory or critical race theory, but it seems to me there the anecdote, ironically, is a, a type of social Darwinism mm-hmm. where it's the discriminators now become the, discrimin- become the discriminated, the oppressors now become the oppressed. And so it's just simply, you know, a, a social Darwinism where you, you're, it's a power struggle and you're, you're trying to uh, encourage those people that are you know, again, oppressed to rise up and exert their power to oppress the oppressors. But that solution is is only going to be temporary, in my view. It's never going to bring about genuine reconciliation. It's not going to really solve the problem. Uh, it's it just simply, uh, uh, again, <clears throat> you know, uh, I, I think just displacing the problem from one people group to another group or one, you know, uh, community to another community within a, within our culture that to me just doesn't seem to be the way to go. And again, the irony here, and going back to this Alison Hooper article, is that she 
may, very well may be motivated by critical theory and critical race theory to make this outlandish assertion that creationism is equivalent to white supremacy. Uh, but, you know, uh, interestingly enough, um, the, the, her approach is really a, a bullying approach where she's trying to, to silence or cancel creationism by connecting it to racism. And, you know, uh, you know I think um, that in a sense, she is ironically uh, tapping into the worst aspect of, of human evolution, which is this idea that led to ultimately social Darwinism. Uh, she, in, so instead of having this beautiful message that we all are, you know, of, of one people, that we all come from dark-skinned people, that we all are African underneath our skin, and that this should be powerful motivation for us to see each other uh, through, the, through a lens of, you know, uh, uh, where we recognize each other as equal, uh, she is essentially re reverting to the worst of the worst when it comes to uh, human evolution and namely the, the, the birth of, of social Darwinism. That's such a good word. Thank you so much, Fuzz. Thank you for helping us with this com conversation. It's just been incredibly educational and helpful. Yeah, thanks so much. Glad to My see pleasure. you again. <laughs> yeah, good to see you too. We're going to let Fuzz go because he's going to go play with his granddaughter who's visiting. Yes. So we appreciate your time. Uh, my pleasure, anytime. All right, we'll All right, see you. And I want to... Uh, commend one more time Fuzz's book, Who Was Adam? If you really want to do a deep dive uh, on kind of the technical details about human origins and the Bible and bringing those two areas together of general and special revelation, you can check that out. Now, I'm going to tell you, like, this is this is not a book for for beginners. This is this is a book for, you know, people that are really interested in um, paleo uh, anthropology but if you have somebody in your life who likes to ask these more technical questions, this is a great book to engage them with. And one of the things I love about books are reasons to believe is that they are designed to be given away to a non-Christian. They don't assume that you have to be a Christian in order to read the book. Mm -hmm. And so they want to get non-Christians into the conversation. Um, and so when you, hand them the book, you know, stay in the conversation with them, but just know that, that that's a book that, that they have, they have edited and written it with, with the non-Christian in mind. So that's awesome. You know, he um, wrapped up his comments talking about the irony of it all. And, you know, I think that there's so much irony just in this article by itself and, and in looking at things like some of the critical theories or critical race theory and this article where I'm not sure if any of you are familiar with the Smithsonian Institute's infographic that came out last, last summer, last fall, yeah, last summer, yeah. um, where many of the things that are used in this article to, to uphold, um, the this idea of of white supremacy would be based on science that's the very thing that many from that the smithsonian um, institute said were racist so let me give an example um the infographic said that things like the scientific method reason those were parts of whiteness and that was racist but this article uses mm -hmm. science reason the scientific method to be able to say something is whiteness and racist. So basically what they're doing is using racism to prove racism. 
or using whiteness to prove whiteness, it's really confusing. Like the irony that's that's there when you start to thread through all the pieces of it. That's very interesting. All right. We're going to um, talk now for a minute about our friends at Impact 360. We mentioned them at the top of the show and their important work in helping to come alongside families and disciple their young people, mm-hmm. young adults. We're going to watch a short video and come back and talk more about that. Change isn't going to come just because you want it to. Change comes because you are intentionally taking steps to making that change. I aspire to be someone who continues to build bridges with other cultures and who cultivates a community that's healthy and honoring to the Lord and life-giving. Now, after the program, I feel like I know what my purpose is and I know what I want to do going out into the world and how to not have this time to step back and just kind of be patient and be still and just listen. I don't think I would have had that same clarity. In this world, it's kind of like in a scream contest. Who can scream the loudest and who's going to listen to that person yelling the loudest? And that person should be God, but he's not yelling, he's calling us. My hope going forward to interact with culture is to tell people like, hey, like, be still, listen to this guy, he's calling you, he's calling you home. Our friends at Impact 360, we are grateful for their ministry to young people and their commitment for or to a biblical worldview. When we were there this past week, um, we were there on Thursday. We spoke on Thursday. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's all such a blur. But um, we kind of did a little bit of an overview on worldviews. What is a worldview? What are the four big questions that every worldview must answer? But then we walked them through what their culture is telling them. And we didn't talk in the beginning, the whole like kind of first two hours. We never mentioned critical race theory, queer theory. We just asked them to identify the values and messages from their culture. Yes. And they identified critical race theory and queer theory without naming it. They didn't. And then we gave them a name. Yeah. And which was fascinating to me because there are so many talking heads out there right now saying, well, we don't espouse critical race theory. We're not Mm -hmm. talking about queer theory. That's not what this is. But yet, isn't it interesting that here these 14 to 18 year olds are And they're just going through line by line what those frameworks believe. And this only goes to what you and I keep saying is that this is the air they breathe. It's the Mm -hmm. water they swim in. They might not know the name of it. They haven't read all the books, but they're sure getting the messaging. It wasn't like, you know, straw men or like things that people want to call critical race theory. But, you know, it might not be, you know, because a lot of the academics are like, well, that's not technically critical race theory. But they were like, you know, racism is everywhere. I mean, every time you turn around, like racism is there, it's everywhere. And this is what we're being taught, that it's everywhere in our social media. Well, that's one of the tenets of critical race theory is that racism is everywhere. It's in like endemic. It's everywhere. Um, Or that, you know, they it was a majority um, white student body that they wouldn't be able to know racism truly or speak speak into issues of racism truly because they don't have the experience of um, of black or brown people. Well, that goes into some of the narrative that's explained in critical race theory. It was really interesting to see how 
what's not being taught, quote unquote, not, being, not taught being taught, allegedly is everywhere with like it steeped into these young people. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, there's people that want to debate us. They'll say, well, critical race theory is really just a legal theory from the 70s or 80s or whatever. And it, it has no bearing, you know, one way or the other on Christianity. And it's, it's not a worldview. And yet, 100% of the students in the room, they, they all recognize this is what the culture is telling them. And it answers the same exact questions. There I am. There she is talking. I blurred out some of people's faces because, you know, they're minors. But uh, there she was helping them. It was a great time. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad we're going back in September. We'll probably go back in the spring. Yeah. And um, just being able to pour into their lives. So we want to encourage parents to think about Impact 360. They have a one-week summer camp, two-week summer camp, nine-month gap year program. And a master's program. And a master's program. So they can do that. Now, I want to say, I see Gary. um, I didn't see this question when we had Fuzz on um, and maybe we'll, we'll have him back at some point to talk about this. So I'm sorry, Gary, I did not see your question about uh, Fuzz's view on John Walton's Lost World of Adam and Eve and Biologos. That wasn't really the, the topic of the conversation tonight, but maybe we'll have Fuzz on in the future and talk about theistic evolution and, you know, his take on all of that and why um, he's not a theistic evolutionist. And he's had a lot of uh, interaction with our friends at Biologos, but he can talk about that. But one of his main issues is that as he went into quite a lot of detail toward the middle of the interview about the historical Adam and Eve and the, the great importance that fuzz places on that from a biblical point of view and biologists would tend to see that quite a bit differently than he does. So that would be a, a critical distinction. Yes. Um, so thank you everyone. We hope that you have found this conversation helpful tonight. Yes. It was interesting. It was interesting. All right. So one final thing is if you haven't yet registered for the Discipleship Begins at Home conference, we will not be here next week. We will be dark next week Yes. because we will be speaking and hosting that conference. It's not too late to register. And there is a promo code where you can get 10% off partner 10 uh, it has to be in all caps as it is ca- um, case sensitive, but you can still register for the Discipleship Begins at Home Conference. It's 100% virtual and you can attend live or you can purchase the recordings. Yes. And speaking of conferences, the UP Conference, Uniting People, the Center for Biblical Unity's annual conference is coming up in September UP stands for Uniting People, and our focus this year is justice, biblical justice, standing for biblical justice in a social justice world. We're going to get in, do a deep dive into all things biblically justice-related. We'll definitely be having more details about that coming up in August. Um, We're going to be featuring on the podcast here some of the speakers that we're going to be featuring at the conference And I'm going to be doing some live streams on my Theology Mom podcast about justice. So you'll want to catch those as sort of previews of coming attractions of of what we're going to be covering at the conference. So our goal is to always resource you, help to educate you, 
so that you can be in dialogue both with your kids and with your coworkers and friends and family about these very important issues that you can bring the kingdom of God near um, in that is consistent with the historic Christian faith. Yes, and then we've talked about this. You probably didn't know I was going to talk about it here. But on the family meeting, we're going to start to go through some of the major parts of the Center for Biblical Unity, our vision, um, our values, our mission, our vision, and our values. And so over the next two to three family meetings, we're going to take time to really dive into who is the Center for Biblical Unity? What are you a part of? And we want you to understand the tenets of, of CFBU or our major um, foundational pillars so that you know that you're not just, you know, a part of you know, what's that organization again? No, but we are family and you are part of something that is truly structured. So I guess that's all for, for tonight. We tired people. We're going to go rest. It's been a long week, but we hope you've enjoyed the, the stream tonight and that you'll share it. Share it out on your social media. Again, help us overcome those uh, bots who are trying to shadow ban us. We have 18,000 followers on Facebook. Our posts consistently reach about 800 to 1,500 people. So it's a small percentage of our followers. We need your help. Whenever you see a post, go like all the posts. Try to share the posts and help us overcome the shadow banning because that's the number one way that people find the ministry is posts that their friends and family have shared from all the things or from Center for Biblical Unity. So that's a great way to help us out. Thank you so much, everyone. All right. See you later. Not next week, two weeks. Two weeks. God bless. Thanks for listening to All The Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.